Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. In this interview, Tyson Cheka unpacks his design process, how he began to build parkour obstacles, and where he finds inspiration. He discusses his current plans and goals and explains why he doesn't consider himself a great artist or creator. Tyson shares his experiences with depression, how it's affected his life, and how he's working through it. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Hello, I am Tyson. Tyson Cheka is well known in the parkour community for his innovative parkour design and construction work, in addition to being an athlete and coach. A co-founder of Parkour Visions, Tyson stepped down from leadership with the organization in 2017 after 10 years as its executive director. He also started Sturdy Made, an awesome online community of parkour builders involving videos, plans, reference projects, and experiments. Welcome, Tyson. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Tyson, as I mentioned, you're best known for, I would say, your creative construction objects and build and build outs like within spaces. And I'm just wondering, can you take me back and talk me through wh where do you think that started? Like, was it, did it happen at the same time that you started parkour or did you like, we're always building decks? Like, I mean, how, how did this, that's not an obvious thing to really be passionate about. There aren't many people who are, do it and are good at it. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering like, where does that passion come from originally? Uh I think it was accidental. I started parkour much before I started teaching or building anything. Mm -hmm. um, I just went out and found one person in like my state that was training and went and trained with him. And then I, that was down in Portland and I, I helped kind of get that community going. And then I ended up going to the university of Washington for college and got involved with the Seattle community there and helped that, help that get, get on its feet. But we didn't start teaching until we didn't start teaching in a way that required obstacles mm -hmm. until we started the nonprofit pretty much. So it was out of necessity for like, we need classes that can handle a large number of people coming through them because we want to spread parkour as far as we can. We want to run these free, these free monthly classes for people. Mm -hmm. So we're going to need some equipment to be able to support that. And so came totally out of necessity. I had no particular background in, in building or anything of that sort. So you did a session recently at Art of Retreat, which I caught just a glimpse of, um, having seen, I was going to say like the thoroughness, but like the attention to detail and the intentionality of how you build, there's, there's more to it than that. It's not like, you can't tell me you just got lucky when you put together your first vault box and, you know, ta-da, like I'm, I'm wondering how did that evolve? And I've built a couple of vault boxes. They're like Franken boxes. They, they haven't been collapsed yet, but they're really ugly looking. And I'm just wondering, how did you get from... How, you know, I put the first one together with like nails or whatever, but how did you get from that? Like what about the construction drew you into like want to refine it and then get into like plywood and shear forces and fasteners. And there's, there's a lot to it. Yeah. Well, it definitely didn't just happen. Our first fault box was horrible. Uh, <laughs> we like Mark thankfully gave us some like dimensions for a vault box that he made but he only dimensioned the plywood. So we like just cut the plywood to size. And then mm. we're like, how do we attach these plywood pieces to each other? So we just kind of like stuck in some pieces of wood in between them. Uh -huh. And that was our first fall box. Wow. So the next yeah. day you had to build a new one, right? <laughs> it lasted a little bit. Um, the, I really like experimenting to find optimal solutions. I mean, that's a big part of my parkour practice too, right? It's like, I find a challenge that, 
piques my interest. And I try to find the best way for me to, you know, maneuver myself from one point to another within that, having that challenge in mind. Hmm. And I can get really in depth into that where everybody else within the training group or whatever goes off and do something else. And I'm like, no, I still have to like do this thing. And I can't touch this thing because I'm, I'm, I really right. want to try this, this one movement and I don't have it yet. So I'm going to keep going at it. And that's just, I think a part of my personality. So when our equipment was like not usable in a lot of different situations, it was like only good for like one thing in one direction or whatever it, it prompted me to think about, well, okay, how could this be refined or changed so that, so that we can get mm-hmm. more use out of it mm-hmm. so that we can up its potential. And I think like that was, it was kind of my approach to everything within the business that I was, that I was building. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it doesn't feel like a unique um, skill set for me. It's, it's just a lot of trial and error. I just felt comfortable with doing the trials and having them like fail miserably learning something from it and trying again yeah every failure should be a lesson if you're if you're doing your trials correctly every failure would be a lesson that you could then apply going forward um how long was it from you know the first vault box to the first time you tried to build in like create an indoor built space so Yeah. yeah so we didn't have that opportunity pretty much which was maybe unique within our our position we were the we were like the third gym that had opened in north america or something like that at the time when we started um and we had an existing program before that teaching parkour outdoors Mm -hmm. and we had little pieces of equipment like maybe a balance beam a couple ball boxes and a set of parallel bars i think is what we opened into the space with and a whole slew of precision trainers most likely um but we had saved up as much money as we can as we could. But in our first space, which was only two thousand square feet, we didn't even have enough money to floor the entire gym. Mm-hmm. Like we floored half the gym, and we like used that half uh, as we built up stuff and moved into other things. So we were just utilizing what was already kind of in the space, um, throwing some plywood on it, and calling it a rock climbing wall or something, mm-hmm. and just uh, and bit by bit adding adding to that uh, adding to that modifying that we were building in the space for a while and then we rented out kind of a garage nearby in order to to build some more stuff so that we didn't just destroy the gym every single time we built a new obstacle <laughs> just a little bit of sawdust a little bit of broken stuff right? oh yeah no it was it was sawdust is a pain to get out of the the rubber flooring right. um and that process i think taught me a lot about both sort of gym design and obstacle design and just how, how much people loved having new opportunities to play like new avenues unlocked uh, yeah, for new things of, showing up in yeah, the gym. Upon, right. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and so like the people, the people that were coming to this, to this, it was a glorified garage, our first gym. Um, it had fairly high ceilings, but it was, it was 2000 square feet broken up between two rooms. It was mm. pretty tiny. The people that were coming were were just they 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 kind of fell in love with the place. It was a niche, interesting, weird place, and we just kept adding niche, interesting, and weird things. Um, the favorite obstacle in that gym was what we called the awkward bar, which was a railing that I found at a reuse store that I believe was used for going upstairs. It was like a triangle shape, and I took that and I mounted that on the wall 
so that at the top of the railing, there was a flat section and then it was a triangle coming back down. Mm -hmm. It was the awkward bar because your first intention was to usually like swing through it, but that was, didn't particularly work. Like you would hit yourself on the way, like you had to orient your body in a very interesting way to make it through this thing. And so it just, it became the awkward bar and it was loved and we, we kind of kept it throughout uh, PKB's history. And, and that, that seeing my students react to that in that way mm. of like, they found we, they found laches through that. They found tax through that. They found precisions to the top of it, which was like the craziest challenge when we first found out that we could do that. Seeing them figure out so many different things from just a railing that I bought and mm. literally just put on the wall made me just get really into like, how many more things can I, can I do? What else can we, what else can we can we figure out? Hmm. Um, we never had the money to, to be like ideal situation. Let's build out the perfect gym. Right. So if we never with cat, always, yeah. always with standing there I like, like, Oh, I, could do I, I, I kind of feel like at that point in time, if we had a miracle money source and we had done that, I don't think we'd have the same gym that we, that we ended up with. And I, I don't feel like it would have the same, the same culture, the same, the same value uh, that I feel that, that it, um, exhibited. How much interaction was there with the students and with the coaches? So what I'm interested in is, first of all, who was the, like the build team? Was it really just you or were all the coaches involved in the physical, like the physical cutting and, and assembly? And I'm interested in the people who weren't part of the construction. How were you interacting with them? Because, it seems interesting. Like they would be it's like every morning is Christmas. You'd come to the gym and you're like, Oh, there's a bar. Oh, there's a box. Oh, there's a thing. And I'm wondering how you took their feedback and fed that into your internal design and create creative process. Yeah. Yeah. I would rarely find inspiration from a student. It usually always came from our coaches and their desires on what they would be able to teach. Um, I would sometimes watch classes and see like, if there just felt like there was something missing or if there was a certain problem with like how long something was taking, taken to being set up or like if it seemed like the coach was reaching for something that we just didn't have like the capability of doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the inspiration for that stuff came from within the first gym because we had limited like building space. We didn't particularly have a shop that was easy to, to easy to get to within the first one. I did most of the building. Um, when I brought Eric on, he was, he kind of became the builder as I needed to do a lot more administrative tasks. Um, but but he, he's the physical builder. So you're saying, you know, build this by this, by this, what dimension they put together. So he's doing the physical construction, but he's not doing the creative work. Uh, as a question, that's what I'm asking. Like, how, what was the load on the creativity? I don't particularly remember at that point in time, but I remember that when we brought him on, we needed to make like just a lot more of everything that we had already. Like one of the things that I love doing is creating the new stuff, the different stuff, the interesting stuff, but I make them maybe one or two at a time. And then we realize like, Oh, this is cool. This really works. Makes we sense. should have like eight more of these. <laughs> so so like the first thing that Eric did after we hired him was like make like six vault boxes and right. it took up the entire garage that we were renting as the shop. It was just vault boxes from floor to ceiling. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty, pretty hilarious. I'm wondering if you, if you realize how, um, subtle is the right world. If you realize how 
I was going to say deep, but that doesn't make sense either. But like how deep it is that you're able to look at a space, like a, a physical gym space with people moving in it. Yes, you have insight into how the coaches work because you know what they're trying to do, but you're still looking at people and you're watching them. Some of them are problem solving where the problem is, how do I teach? Some of them are problem solving, like the problem is, how do I learn? But you're standing there watching those people. And that means you have to actually empathize with them and understand their feelings and their desires and, and maybe even their hopes and their dreams. The coaches are thinking big and then go back to the mad scientist lab and, and then look at these physical materials and go, okay, I can't make a 19 foot railing out of plywood. Like there's the reality has to be blended with that thing. And I'm wondering if, um, well, first of all, do you realize now, I think that's very, very unique, your ability to do that. That's not something that I think most people have. So I don't know if you realize that is the first part of the question. Man. <laughs> Man. Okay. I'm going to take that as you don't realize how unique that is. So that's actually quite unique. I put things onto walls yeah. and then be like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So how many other people do you know who put things on the walls like that? I mean, somebody's got to have done it. Like, yes, of somebody. course you should put this thing on a wall. Yes. But do you know anybody? I don't know anybody that does that. I know people <laughs> who, who visualize like the whole space and they, they like plan it all out, but to, to organically uh, like to organically Jackson Pollock it, that's not a thing that, you know what I mean? Like, just like, let's put this here. Let's put that there. That's not a common skill. And, um, I was going to say, I was assuming you were going to say, yes, you were aware that that's a unique skill. And then I was going to say, when did you realize that was a unique <laughs> skill? But apparently the answer is you've never realized that. So what are your thoughts when I say that? I think that's, I mean, that's clearly art. That's clearly a creative organic process. So I was teaching too, at the time, um, when we first started, like it was, just a pretty small group of people that were doing little bits of everything, right? I got tapped to do the accounting administration work, but everybody basically had two jobs at that point. And so I would be teaching something and I would be like, I want a thing here. I want a thing here too. In addition to sort of watching the, watching the classes and stuff, I don't think that I would be able to just sort of pop something into my brain that, that, would be cool to make and that I think has movement for potential without being able to anchor that into I've done this in like this environment and I'd love to recreate the feeling of that uh, within here or I've taught this like to students mm -hmm. within this environment and I wish it was maybe like a little bit different yeah or, or I wish I could get this class in that space that I saw when yeah. I was at yeah yeah so all of those all those experiences influenced any designing process that I did. And most of my designing process is with the, with the object. It, it, as often as I can have an object, as often as I can just have the object and play with it and tweak it, it makes it just drastic, drastically, drastically easier mm. to, to, to build and have something cool come out of it. I can go around in circles in my head forever, obsessively. It keeps me up at night on like, how do I make this thing perfect? And it's like, well, I could do this. I could do this. If I could put a bar there, but I'm like, well, if I put a bar there, then when it's in this orientation, that's maybe a tripping hazard. So I can't put that there, but like I do, it's good. If I have it in this situation, is that more useful than that? And those sort of thoughts will keep me up at night. But when I actually have the thing, when I have it built, it's the answer is like obvious it's like mm -hmm. yeah it's totally worth it like i just did this thing and that was super super cool any downsides to this is whatever no doesn't right. doesn't matter but you realize that the average person can't do that in their head right like the the average person cannot and I, i'm gonna 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I actually can do that. I can, I can build things in three dimensions in my head, flip them around and go, that's not going to work that, you know, and like visualize how the stress and the shears work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I'm digging into this because I think you have a skill set here that is way beyond like I can build things because mm-hmm. um, we were talking before. And one of the things I want to ask you is to talk about your one, if you're willing talk about one of your ideas about going and doing, I love the term artist art, like artist in residency type of construction work. And if you want to unpack that, I would love for you to tell me more about that idea about how mm-hmm. that would work. You want to jump like right into the, what, uh, I guess I'm missing what you're, what you're so you, you, were, to, you were talking yeah. about having, okay, I'll come in and I'll build something that you want. And then in yeah, exchange, yeah, yeah. you let mm-hmm. me build something that I want. Yeah. A, and the, I love the term artist in residence. And it's a, uh, like a, you, I get freedom in exchange for you getting a thing that you believe you want first or second. And that is, I mean, I'm just going, this is not, you are not, you're not, you're not building boxes. You are creating, you are an artist building and working in space, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I just keep, I just keep wanting to play it down even more though. Like the, the, what you were talking about in terms of like being able to visualize something and being able to, to flip it and write and yeah, flip it and whatever. And like, for me, that's all parkour as well. That's all. If I can visualize my body moving through space and visualize the movements that I'm going to be doing uh, before doing it, which is a bar- very powerful tool within parkour, then why shouldn't I be doing that when I'm building, designing something in the same way, right? I, I agree that you work that way and I think I work that way, but I don't know many people who think that way. Okay. That's um, mm-hmm. And it may be, an, that may be part of what called you to parkour like you may have always had this i was going to say tenacity like this idea of like oh that thing is like like do you find uh, this happens to me i see objects like you know industrial things in reality and i go why is it that's dumb like you you the center of gravity is too high why don't you turn around do you find yourself like inventing problems like just you know when you look at the world inventing problems and then solving them yeah so this is why we named the organization parkour visions because for me one of the most powerful things for getting into parkour was how it changed my view of the entire world. Um, I could entertain myself by just walking around in the city and imagining Mm -hmm. all the different things that I could do in those areas. And that also led me to grabbing every railing that I saw to test how strong it was and just running my hands over the texture of different things so that I could get a feel for, Oh, this is, this tends to be slippery when it's dusty. This one seems to be a lot better and doing those sort of things every single day, no matter where it was that I that I went, I definitely had those thoughts of like, well, crap, they should have just done this. Mm. And then this railing would have been way, way more strong. And I would have been able to jump on it, even if I was just jumping on it in my head. Right. And I didn't like have time to do it then. Uh, it's still disappointing me that, mm. they, that they just didn't do it that way. Right. And so having those thoughts just kind of constantly all the time, I'm sure influenced the way that, that I, that I would come to like, um, design and and build obstacles. Or I'm, I'm thinking, or those thoughts are what caused you to, I mean, I'm guessing people who throw clay, they don't, they didn't start out by saying, I would like to make pots. They, mm-hmm. they started out by like, I am drawn to form shapes from, you know, amorphous blobs and painters start from the, the same sort of vision. Um, so I'm, I'm starting to feel more like you're an artist than a constructor of things, but you know, your medium happens to be 
uh, plywood lumber and screws. And maybe we should talk about um, the destruction of said objects. I think that was a really cool way to present that material if we want to go there too. But um, I do like to say things that the people who are listening have no clue what I'm talking about and then just like not come back to them like, bummer, you should have been there. Um, but if you want to talk about it, it might be fun to talk about, since I hinted at what you presented at Art of Retreat, to talk about why you thought, I'm going to put words in your mouth, why you thought destroying objects like you know temporary not not destroying the physical building but destroying purpose-built parkour little mini example objects um, why you thought that would be a great way to teach people because i think it's pretty clear that you wouldn't need to do that like you could just like picture it and go it's not gonna work is that that works in my head okay build it you don't need to destroy them anymore yeah there was kind of two things that i was trying to accomplish with the with the destructive experiment phase of that of that workshop uh, one of them was that I, I, I have advice that I give people that came from somewhere. Maybe I made it up. Maybe someone else told me that that's how it should be done. Like I had mentors when I, when I first started on, on how to, how to properly build these things. And I would pass on that advice and people would accept it like gospel. And I would always be a little bit worried by that because it's like, well, I don't really know what I'm, what I'm doing. I've experimented. These seem to be pretty good stuff pretty good ideas, but I don't necessarily know that you should just take it as, as this is the one way that you should go. Um, maybe you should experiment with this more. And so that was a, let's, let's test some of these things. Mm -hmm. And so like we had, we had half inch plywood versus three quarter inch plywood, which is one of the, one of the things like, yeah, half inch plywood is a lot cheaper and it seems like it might be strong enough. But, yeah. But three quarter inch but, plywood is way stronger. <laughs> and that's, and that's, you know, kind of what we found is that, yeah, it's, it's like, really going to break much, much easier in certain situations where we had a much harder time breaking the, breaking the three quarter inch. But then we also found that like different plywoods break in different ways, which was interesting, um, to be able to, to get a differentiation between that. And it's like, we weren't necessarily getting all the, all the physics, like perfect experimental results out of it. But what I wanted to show people was how you get just sort of a general feel for these things. Right. So it's like, I make screw recommendations not necessarily because I know huge amounts about screws. I'm fairly interested by screws and I do know a few, a fair amount, but <laughs> maybe more than for, you want to admit. For, right? the, for the analogy, um, I make the recommendations because I um, bought a bunch of them and I, and I just, you know, broke them in different ways and to see kind of what physical characteristics they had. Um, because I knew some of those would be more useful for others for the sort of obstacles that we were making. Um, at the very beginning, I didn't say it because it gets recorded later, but at the very beginning of the podcast episodes, I say that I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do and why they do it. So you want to guess what I'm going to ask you now? I know who you are. I know what you do. I want to know why do you build parkour, parkour obstacles? <laughs> when I first got into parkour, it intrigued me because it was much, much more open and free than a lot of the sports that I had done. Uh, I had done many, many different sports. I'd stick around with them for like a year and then I would feel somewhat constricted by them or just that it wasn't, wasn't kind of the right fit. Mm -hmm. um, I was really enthusiastic about parkour with the, with the freedom that it allowed and the seemingly kind of unlimited uh, potential there was nobody knew what the, what the max limits were for any of the movements. Right. They were constantly being changed and broken and, and new and interesting ways of moving were being kind of invented or discovered all the time. 
when it came to the point of building obstacles to support classes that we were running, I started to see the same pathway open up in terms of if I can put a slanted wall anywhere that I want within this space, all of a sudden I can do so many more movement types, right? I can do all these different wall tricks that were like way harder without it. I can reach higher with my with my attacks. I can do weird up the wall roll thingies that I haven't really seen much anywhere mm-hmm. else, right? And that sort of expanding of the potential bubble just really interests me. And my main one of my main drives with um sort of parkour as a business has been always to share it with as many people as I can because it affected my life very deeply and um, very positively. And I wanted to try to spread that to as many people as I could. And so, you know, we accomplished that by, by starting the nonprofit and running all these classes Mm -hmm. and getting, I think we were, we were pretty close to 30,000 people through the gym over the, over the period of running it, taking direct classes um, in it. And, and I think just sort of another, another way to get people into the discipline or deepen their relationship with the discipline is to, is to give them interesting, accessible, unique spaces to practice parkour. And I think that's, I think that's something that's, that, that is either lacking out there right now, or could potentially be lacking if we don't do enough to protect the places that we love. Um, places get, you know, shut down and, and like, I, I, I see the, the, the stuff that got demolished in lease, for example. And I'm like, oh, that, you yeah. know, as beloved spot, those movements are kind of forever lost to a certain right. degree. Right. Unless somebody remakes that, you know, with the, with the same sort yeah. of, even the, if they remake it though, it's like, it's not the same. It's no. never going to particularly be the same because it's going to be different, different people, different culture within that area. Right. So it's like, we fall in love with these spaces that aren't ours, that aren't, that aren't, that we don't necessarily have control, control over, or rarely will have control over, or, or we'll, we find that we don't even have much say in them a lot of times. And so I think that's why it's, it's important to be able to have safe spaces that we know will will persist. That we have control over, right? Yeah. Sa- yeah. Safe in the sense that we control them. That we don't care about physical safety that, that much. I mean, yeah. it's not. That's a pretty easy thing to accomplish. Yeah, I like when I was training on like the University of Washington campus. Like they, they cut down like a few branches, and I was amazed at how much it like affected me emotionally. I was like, I was using that. That was it. Was it wasn't only that I was using it. It was like that was the first time. I did this massive mental breakthrough was because that branch was there. I had this massive mental breakthrough. I was able to do this jump that I would never have considered being able to do before. And it's like, now that opportunity is gone or that opportunity for me to show that to someone else and have them experience kind of what I went through is gone. And, um, yeah, I think that's like, I was very surprised by how much that affected me. So like I knew that I knew that part of the push was okay like to protect the future of the discipline let's make good coaches who can pass on parkour and preserve what parkour is about right like that that's that's one avenue to preserve the environments for parkour to make sure that there are still environments that we can go to and do parkour mm-hmm. we need to encourage parkour parks and parkour gyms to 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 open and run and, and, and persist. 
and that's another another avenue and i think both of them are both of them are really important so there's a a dichotomy uh you know like a opposite polar pole between and i don't mean like people say this but just in general conceptually parkour in the found space versus parkour in the built space and one of the criticisms of parkour in built spaces is that it i guess stifles creativity or you know there or they would say the things that you can do in the found space are missing the, the creativity required in those found spaces is missing and um you and i had a discussion not on these mics where we were talking about finding you know the finding it in built spaces that can be manipulated because they were manipulated by somebody else and i'm wondering when you see people who use your structures so not when you have the opportunity to you know discover that somebody's moving but when you see them use them in ways that you hadn't expected i'm just wondering what what you think when you see that what emotions that brings up oh it's it's absolutely thrilling like the i tell the story of of why we why we kind of built the wall boxes the way that we that way that we do in that they are like pretty stupidly overbuilt in terms of like just being able to do a Kong on it. It's like, you can just make a sawhorse and do a Kong off it. But what I found is that like the, the first time that we, the first time that our coaches had access to that equipment, they would immediately like tip the vault box on its side and try to use it as a tacking platform. And our first vault boxes couldn't handle that. They didn't have enough structural stability in that direction to be able to kind of facilitate that. So like every time I would make a new obstacle, our instructors would find some new weird way to use that obstacle that I never considered while designing it. And so I was just like, okay, well, I'm just going to make everything as rigid and as strong as I can so that when that, when that situation arises, I can just be like, awesome, sweet. It works that way. I'm mm. like proud that it still works that way. And you are awesome for being such a creative individual for like flipping it around and leaning it up against that and, and propping and with this. Right? It. Yeah. Yeah. What's, um, I understand that you, um, took a, like a, a step back and moved to Vancouver to have a, like some recovery time. And it seems that you are now like these days, you seem to be getting more back into things. And I'm just wondering do you have a vision or a plan for like what you're going to be doing like maybe for the rest of the year or like, you know, what, where do you see yourself moving to since you're kind of moving away from Vancouver as a home base or spending more time outside of Vancouver? Uh, it's like I've always, so when I started parkour, I was, I sort of considered myself to be one of the first generation of people that were training around at that time. And what that means is not necessarily that like, I was the first to start. So look at all the experience that I have. Um, it meant that I had to travel to like train with other people. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was look, one person doing by car, yeah, a community, right? Yeah, I, I, had, I had to go to Texas to, to train with Jeremy there and I had to go to New York to train with Jesse there. And, and I like followed proper generations around for the first time that they came to like every event that they went, no matter where it was in the mm -hmm. States. And like, these were the ways that I could get good, good training in, because I, I thrive a lot off of being able to train with other people that have as crazy ideas as, as I do a lot of times. And that's something that like I valued really highly when I was uh, developing myself as an athlete. And it's something that I stepped away from when I was developing the, the business to be able to, to reach more people and to, and to spread parkour. I find that I'm not 
as as interested as developing myself as an athlete as I was during that time. And I don't like the the big jam environments as much that are geared towards um, sort of that end of the spectrum where where you're going to to push yourself really hardly hard and develop as an athlete. It's like I have my own practice at this point, and I have I know the things that make me feel fulfilled from right. from the movements that I do. And so the traveling I think that I want to do now is to is to go to, you know, my friends and other leaders within the parkour communities and to see the spaces or the programs that they've built and uh, and the challenges and the and the obstacles that they've had to overcome in getting there and to see if I can offer ways to to help and develop that or to or to even challenge some of the some of the beliefs that they've built up over over what what they think you know works works best for their for their situation and so like that's kind of what i'm imagining my next my next progression to be i i really enjoy the 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 building arm of this and i really enjoy doing doing really unique and interesting things that kind of push the limit and i would love to just find uh more people who are willing to kind of take that step and be like what would happen if we just cut a tree and brought it in here and flipped it upside down and like use that as the start of a really cool precision uh bar scaffolding course and be like yeah that sounds great let's do that right it's easy i know from kind of personal experience that it's that it's easy to get locked into you found a thing that works and you keep doing that thing and that thing makes you money and 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 it doesn't feel safe to to expand past and push right. push for that thing. Well, and people would be asking for us. So money aside, if everybody says, "Please build more of those," you're like, "Well, yeah, they're yeah. great. I'll build more." Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah, yeah. And we had a unique position, I think, as a nonprofit where we weren't tied as strongly to those to those like profit generating activities. And I put like the the popularity and achievements of what. Colin has been doing with our design arm Mm -hmm. as, as like due to our kind of focus as a nonprofit where we did parkour design for parks and push for parks for really strongly for two years straight without making a dime from it. Right. And we were paying like Colin all this all during this time to do like, okay, well, option A didn't work. Let's go to option B. Option B didn't work. Let's go to option C. And like, we, we were at like plan H by the time the, 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 they, the, bought, the whole, they bought, right. Well, by the time the whole project fell through and it was no longer <laughs> possible to do. And then we moved on to the next possible project. Um, we've had a very long history of, of trying to make these things happen and not quite getting there. And it's only until recently that there are actually examples in the ground of parkour parks that, 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 we've built that people are 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 actually on board with the with the idea it's like now the examples are out there now we can actually proceed and it's not just us talking and doing presentation after presentation after presentation trying to sell these people on it they can just talk directly to the to the to like the parks department of the place that has it and see like how powerful it actually is for that for that community I forgot the rest of what we were talking about. Um, that's just fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to maintain a coherent overarching thread through the discussion. Um, 
I'm the, the hardest part of being on this side, and I know that your side is also very hard, but the hardest part on my side is trying to decide which avenues to like follow. So one of the things that you said was that, you know, A to B to C to D to H and then fail. And then you yeah. did another one and it failed and you did one, then it succeeded. And the first thing I thought of was if it took H iterations on the first failure, was it fewer iterations on the second failure and fewer iterations on the first success? Because of what I was thinking was it's it's filling it's building vault boxes. You're you're iterating on designs. You're, it's not plywood and screws like in one specific thing, but you're facilitating. In this case, if I understand correctly, you're facilitating Colin doing the work, but you're still guiding this. No, let's keep. Yeah, I know it broke. Like let's keep let's keep going after this. It's smash it with a hammer and do it again and do it again <laughs> and then be cool with just like throwing the whole thing out and starting with a blank slate. Um, so to me, it sounds like pretty much the same process in terms of what is driving you to do that. Yeah. Luckily we weren't having to like, to like throw away stuff that we built on each one of these plants that failed. It was all, it was all generally like, here's a new concept. Let's make a design and a pitch for this and we'll, and we'll see if this works. And then, Oh, we got shut down by this person that's in another department that says, Oh, we can't quite use this space. Okay. Let's, let's go over to this area of the park and try to make this happen here it's like oh no like that area park's actually in a different county and can't do the thing oh yeah so it's like that's the sort of process that we were banging our head up against Mm. and it eventually took less iterations to get through simply because we gained the experience through each of the failures and and that happens within the within the built obstacle environment as well it's just that we don't we we haven't really never had anything break within the last I don't know how many years, but, but that isn't to say that nothing ever, nothing ever broke in the beginning, like broke tons of things in the beginning and just learned from each one of those things. And I think it's, I think it's really important to see any of those things not as failures, but it's just the opportunity to learn new stuff. Cause it's, cause it's rare when it happens and, and that rarity makes it valuable. Uh, and seeing that it's valuable, I think is, is really important to being able to, to learn from that and improve the next generation. Hmm different train of thought. So, you know, like a new chapter, turn the page. What's something that you think that people misunderstand about you or think about you that's actually wrong in your opinion? One of the things I feel like I'm correcting people on a lot is that like, well, one of the things that I've corrected you a lot on (laughs) Which is fine. <laughs> Excellent. I love the, people turn it back on me. Is the is the you know, oh you're such a great artist, you're such a great um whatever, whatever, insert insert this here because of because of this that you made or because of that or because of this. And and I think it's I think it's people can't necessarily see all the all the influences upon my work and just straight up the things that I took credit for that other people did necessarily think, right as people we, think as i'm we a come... good podcaster and i don't have i'm like i have no clue what i'm doing either i'm yeah. doing exactly the same thing i make a lot of mistakes we actually perfect example of before we pressed record we had all these mistakes mm-hmm. and things and weird wire things going on so yeah um i don't think making mistakes uh you know like make a mistake learn make a mistake learn. i don't think that iterative process devalues the mastery that you end up with in the least it is that process which leads you to be a master so yeah, I just I just think that that a lot of times it's difficult to see how much of a group effort it has been up to that point. And it's something that I that I don't always get a chance to to talk about, but like after after our first space when we had the shop that was separated from the from the, the, the space, gym right. and 
into our second space where we had a rather large shop, like directly on it. And our coaches had a lot more experience and they just started building stuff on their own. And so many of the ideas for equipment that was in the gym came from the coaches. I would say the majority of the ideas and some of the unique use cases and unique um, setups came from the coaches. Never, never sure, particularly how came many of those from those coaches from are angle. still building obstacles. Right. It's like, it's okay. So who's the artist here? <laughs> you. <laughs> All right. Keep going. So the coaches are generating. I understand why the coaches would generate a lot of the ideas. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. So I just, I, I always have this, I always have this, this, this urge to, to somewhat correct people on that. And I think it, it, it goes back to even when, as we started as a nonprofit, we get the question all the time because we, for the longest time, we were the only nonprofit in the, in the entire States. Like, I think there's two now, mm-hmm. um, but for the longest time we were the only ones and people would always ask, you know, why did you start why as a nonprofit? Model, right? Because I would tell them right away, if they were trying to start a nonprofit, I'd be like, no, don't do that. It's way too hard. <laughs> we, we had no idea the, the amount of overhead that we were getting into and, and responsibility that we were taking on and creating this as a nonprofit. But it came out of a desire kind of, of, of for me of this is, this is, this is our way to give back the things that we know, the things that we've learned about parkour did not come from, they came out of our efforts, but they were only possible because of the people that we were training with in the community that we grew out of. Right. And this is our way to show that we are dedicated to giving back to that community. And this is our way to show that this is sort of a group effort a group effort to, to push this forward and expand it to more people. And I, I very strongly push for that culture within the gym environment. And I think that is, is, I think like where I am now or where the, the level of respect for proper visions is now is directly because of that. Uh, I, I don't think it was me. Like I, push for things, but I was not the person that, that, that came up with all of these ideas or that, that did all of these accomplishments. And I just, the original question was, what do people get the get wrong most wrong you, right? about me? And, and that's the very long answer to that, to that question. They, is they, that, they overestimate your role or your influence. Exactly. Exactly. Like the, I think part of, part of being a successful business person part of being a successful role model leader whatever is that you inspire others or even if you don't necessarily inspire others you surround yourself with very capable interesting uh creative people and you may position yourself as the figurehead of that because it's more powerful that way it has a greater reach it's easier to to do the marketing. It's easier to do the the interface with the government or other departments within the city or whatever. But I never want to forget the the people that 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 get yeah. you there. The people that are that are there and a part of that community. So, what's something that you're currently struggling with? My biggest struggle right now is something that that has been kind of plaguing me for the last five or six years, um, which is like mild to severe depression somewhere along there, somewhere within the spectrum. It, it was something that, that I kind of lived with and pushed through and just 
forced my way through stuff when I was running PKV, but I didn't notice the the toll that it was taking on my on my body and my and my mental state. And by the time I realized what that what that was and how it showed up, uh, it was kind of too late to be able to take a step back and take care of myself mm-hmm. in the way that I had needed to. I I feel like I did a lot of sacrificing for others and not enough taking care of myself to the point where I, where I burned out, you know, and I had wanted to like step down from the leading role of, of proper visions for, for a long time uh, before it eventually happened. And, and like, I've been taking the time recently to sort of correct those mistakes that that I've that I've that I've made during that time and learn how to actually take care of myself basically and that that's that's that that's that big struggle that the constant big struggle is is getting over this 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 thing that's 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 very new to me that I don't that I don't understand that I have loving and supporting people around me luckily to help me through but that seems like it's something that only I can solve but I don't quite understand the problem. So one of the issues that I struggle with is finding people to talk to when I get, I I collect, I call it the big black dog. When the big black dog shows up, I can't make it go away. I can't be like, get out of here. I can't ignore it. I can't get it to go for a walk. Like it's, it's just like, it's there and it's just going to be in the living room for, I don't know how long. And anything will set me off. Like people ask me random questions about stuff and it's just becomes this, I can't talk fast enough to explain all the train of thought that I don't even need to think because I've been over this so many times. The carpet is completely worn for me going around in circles and it's really tricky to find, I'm going to say a handhold. So for me, it's usually letting go that gets me out of the the funk that I'm in. And what I'm wondering is if you've found, because I can share some things that I do, but I'm wondering if you found any like short-term so if you recognize that, it, you know, it's one of those days. And for me, the answer is usually to just, I'm super, super driven about like crossing T's and dotting I's. And like, if I said, I'm going to do it, I got to do it. And I can't let anybody down. Uh, so for me, it's usually to just let go of everything because six hours or a day really isn't going to make a difference. So for me, it's usually, I just like say bleep the world, you know, throw my hands up in the air and like go for a walk or a bike ride or something, or, or go have my favorite sandwich or like, you know, just get away. But that's how I do it. That's, that's how I like, uh, like kind of like sneak out the front door. And then I come back and I'm like, is the black dog still here? And usually still is, but maybe I can, you know, spend a few minutes making a phone call or something. Um, so that's how I do it is, is not, I don't, get out of the hole by talking to people because I haven't found anybody that I can talk to. Um, and I'm just wondering if you've found any like, like tools, like, you know, when I need to hit the panic button, like, is it walking or is it, I'm wondering, it might actually be like going and building things where I'm, where I'm fishing is like, what is the, the like immediate cathartic that gets you like one iota of movement in the right direction to get out of the hole? Yeah. When I was in the worst of it, in the really stressful position that I was in, in the executive director during during the many different crises that that the organization went through, I found solace in in taking walks by myself, um, forcing myself to train because, like, I would often not just feel right. any desire to train. We actually, I found this space somewhat near to the gym that was just like this abandoned building 
like half demolished, but sort of just left there and nobody mm-hmm. was doing anything with it. So I started turning that into a second gym sort of th- thing, like, like tricking it out, right? fixing it up, adding grip tape to certain areas that were like, that were falling apart. We started retiring obstacles there. <laughs> the like, obstacle graveyard. When, yeah. When an obstacle went to die, it would make it to the farm instead. <laughs> and, and that was, that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> Gave him a second home. The one thing that audio doesn't convey is the, the way your face lit up when you described the farm <laughs> and the place where the obstacles go to die. It was obvious. Um, I don't want to make it sound trivial, but it, it's, it's, it's deeply meaningful. I can see. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was, that was nice. Um, and that gave the short term for release for them. I expanded on that after stepping down from the from the executive director position. I originally hoped to like jump right into a building constructing role like a manager of the of the shop position, but after losing the gym and that not being a possibility, I instead just kind of took a long time to say fuck it to the rest of of everything and just be like let's let me try to live without without particularly burning myself with responsibilities mm-hmm. for for a year it turned into like a year and a half something like that and i found that what worked for short-term relief in the middle of of the high stress situations did not work for long-term success like i believe that i i by taking myself out of it so much i was more avoiding the problem than than finding a solution like I I was I was using these techniques before for for taking the edge off but if you take away the entire implement then you're left with kind of nothing right mm-hmm. so you need you need something that something that pushes you what I'm thinking now in terms of of the direction that I'm going next for for something that will that will help is that I I think I need to kind of redo my entire mental concept of of how this i don't know how this whole depression thing works for me in that i i always considered this as something that sort of happened to me and i just have to figure out my way out of it Mm -hmm. and i think i need to shift my view on that into like this is who i currently am this is where i am like that is that is that is how it is I, 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 the more that I try to fight that or to get angry at that for like things used to be different, the, the more and more that my body is going to, I think just rebellions that, right. So I really enjoyed the art of retreat taking, taking Wesson's session when he was talking about chronic pain and, and his, his journey through fibromyalgia. Um, he used the, the metaphor of like, as your body gets, gets, gets so sensitive to the world around you and, and the, this pain, it, it, it becomes like a wounded animal and you have to treat it sort of like a wounded animal. And I realized that I had not been treating myself that way. I had been treating myself as like, why can't I just be like right. this or like the what same. do I need to do in order to just make this make this whole thing go away and I wasn't you know showing the love and care and acceptance for just for me you know kind of just being a wounded animal right. <laughs> at that time and so I think that's a that's a shift in mindset 
rather than a a new toolbox of skills that I need to learn, right? right? All of the problems previously in my life were just, oh, I just need new skills in my toolbox, right? Everything was was developing new skills. I'm all about learning new skills. Like I I taught people how to do lock picking at the art of retreat just kind of randomly because i brought some locks with me because yeah sure i lock pick right it's like just another interesting skill for me for me to develop and to play with and that was how that was really important to me through my life and i got a lot out of that but that approach it does not seem to work with the depression with the with the sort of mental illness side of this it's it's not just new skills that i need to develop it's it's a different perspective on who i am as a person potentially so what's something if there is anything what's something that you can think of which just immediately like lights you up with energy and a smile <laughs> nothing <laughs> no, I don't know. how about chocolate ice cream what, not, I, what i'm what i'm what i want to get is like what's your perspective on like what are the kinds of things that you enjoy doing and and what uh what makes you smile um because i'll tell you one thing uh, yeah. talking about lock picking and like the the fun of doing something like that's almost irreverent like this is just such a silly thing but yeah. you know it's so much fun to do and then like people try it and they're like, wait, why can't I, you know, and like that's a, it, it made you smile big time. And it was a very small, it's a very small thing um, in terms of like what's required to do it, what's required to share it, how much effort it really takes. It's a very small, but it, you know, really lit you up when you got to it. Yep. Yeah. And the reason that I originally was like thinking of replying nothing to, to that question was because like, that's, that's like the major thing that just annoys me to death about a out my my current mental state is that like i will try to think of things that bring a smile to my face and i will come up with like nothing it's like oh it's like all these things that i used to enjoy like i don't i don't get the same enjoyment out of it yet i at the same time i know that like i greatly enjoyed like the presentation that i gave especially when we went to destroy stuff with sledgehammers right, right? And I greatly enjoyed teaching people about lock picking, and I greatly enjoyed all the people that came up to me and asked for asked for advice on on construction related stuff and things that they were designing or building. And so, like, I I, I think it comes down to I enjoy helping people. I enjoy spreading the things that that I'm passionate about. It just currently like. I just get, I, I get so easily stuck in these, in these ruts of it, not feeling like I'm going to enjoy it. Mm. I, I was so stressed before my presentation at the, at the art retreat, it was just destroying me. And I knew perfectly well that like I would have a fun presentation and I knew perfectly well that, that people were going to learn stuff from it. But what I don't think that I understood was that I was going to have that much fun doing it. Because it, I don't know, it all just felt like a drag. It all just felt like, oh, like this is just more, more, more ways to, to not meet like either my expectations or other people's expectations. Right. Hmm. 
There isn't particularly an answer to it. <laughs> I, I wasn't. That was not me critiquing your. That I, I made a. That, well, I don't know whether we keep this or not, but I made a gesture with my hand of like "c'est la vie" or you know that's the yeah, way it yeah. is, and and I didn't mean like you ignored me. I meant like I agree with you completely. That's how it works. Um, I was just a, a commiserating gesture. No, I was thinking like a, a lot of times when I I haven't shared with this, I haven't shared this with all that many people because I find that usually people are are have a similar response to it that I do in that once they understand what the problem is, they start thinking about what the solution could be. And then they propose, you know, solution after solution. And it doesn't particularly help. <laughs> I already tried that. And, but. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's, it, and it's really hard to like tell that to somebody or like, or like tell them like, okay, can you stop trying to, to, to fix it? It's like, right. it doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't help me in that, in that stage. It's like, or that, that's like not the support that I'm looking for right now. And, uh, I think that's just something that like, it's, it's, it's really inherent within me. Like I am a problem solver, like give me a problem that's well-defined and I will totally find you a solution. Right. Like I'm just go get it. Problem, solution, problem, solution. And I think like, it's, it's easy to get stuck in a position where it's like caring more about the problem than the person, I Mm, guess is the, is the split there. So (laughs) you had sort of expressed uncertainty as to the value of about talking about it. And I think that there's tremendous value in talking about it. I think that um, too many people think of depression as a, I was going to say like a malady, like uh, there's something wrong with you if you are depressed. And I'm absolutely convinced that you can, I call it optimization. Like I optimize the shit out of everything that I do mm-hmm. all the time. Like what paper, what pen, like, you know, so everything I carry, two flashlights, all this stuff. Um, you, I'm convinced that one cannot optimize oneself out of depression. I've tried it and I'm really good at optimizing stuff. Yeah. And all I do is wind up like, to me, it feels like I have a mental cue of like, I was doing this and then I have to put my finger on it. And then I start going on this and I just begin optimizing. And I'm like, uh, all I've done is make 7,000 things go around in my head, none of which had to do with, I was trying to make a cup of coffee or I was trying to get dressed. And I think just saying those kinds of things out loud help me when I say them to certain people. And I think when other people hear, like the first time I heard somebody else say those kinds of things, I was like, oh, oh good. Like I, I really, really thought that my brain was broken. Now I'm convinced that my brain has actually just been trained to think a certain way, which has to do with how I worked with um, like analytic computers and, and what I did for 25 years of just like everything has to be black and white. Cause that's what I was doing. And then I was like, Oh, so I do this or this and there's a remainder. And then I would have to put that somewhere. And it's like these long optimization processes and leftover details. And when I started to talk to people about that, then I find people like you who say the same sorts of things. I can optimize the hell out of everything, yeah. but I still have this and then I think you're maybe ahead of me in identifying it as I would say, but I still have this problem. And I think your attitude or your outlook is a little uh, healthier or a better way to, to look at it is like, and I still am this rather than trying to fix it. So that's just my take on what you've been saying. I don't think it's useless or I think it's very useful to talk about these things. Yeah. I mean, it's only through through forcing myself to talk about it that I did come to some of these realizations potentially. And I don't know if they'll be of, of particular use because I'm still in the middle of it and I'm mm. just coming away with these ideas. But yeah, I, I, I definitely sort of I think wonder, the same way. Have you ever given any thought, um, 
to my my gut instinct is that these types of things that we're talking are are fairly common but i actually can think of a number of people in the parkour in the movement space that i have talked to about these kinds of things or that who i suspect have these same sorts of things that they think about and i'm just wondering if there's something about the creative type of mindset that the people who are really good at i don't when i say really good at parkour i don't just mean they usually are athletically good, but I mean people who really have the the play vision, parkour vision, the people who really have the um, the culture of effort, that you know Lutheran work ethic thing. That like I'm wondering if those people aren't that's uh, the give and take. Like if you've got that, then you're also susceptible to this vicious self uh, self abuse cycle of trying to push yourself and optimize everything. And I don't know what your, what your thoughts are on. That's not like a secret. I'm trying to dissect you, but I'm just wondering, like, as two people commiserating, like, I wonder if that doesn't generate more um, opportunity for that kind of thought process to arise. Yeah. The other way to put that is, you know, there's, there's just a lot of cool fucked up people in the purple world. <laughs> <laughs> let's just switch. Let's just switch chairs. You come over here and work. All I can do is work these two knobs and then Sweet. I'll be the guest. So that's, that's easy. No, I mean like I, I, I think there has been like a lot of research and stuff that's, that's gone in that direction. I'm like, like do these people who are really, really creative, like um, their brains, maybe they just operate differently. Like they, they come up with different, solutions out of the blue and and that that different operating style comes along with with other other yeah. things that, that yeah. happen and and i think that's that's i think that's totally totally fair and, I'm, I'm nodding vigorously yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody can see it there's um a concept which i will admit to having learned it was either yesterday or the day before they all run that those two days run together where uh I believe it was Paula Flynn was talking about neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big fan of like, wait, what's that? You know, Wikipedia, go dig and read. And one of the parts of it is the idea. And I'm like, oh yeah, the idea that brains, that minds have a variation of behaviors or parameters. And, and like, up until that point, I guess I had always thought like, well, this is how your brain should work. Like, you know, this neuron is going to get to that neuron and then they work together and it makes a big picture and like you can get dressed. And now I'm thinking, oh, so yeah, why would I assume everybody's brains work the same way? There has to be a spread and probably not, you know, like I'm, I'm making a left to right gesture, but actually there would be how many different dimensions of how, I don't know, all the yeah. parameters to brains. And it this kind of sounds silly, but sometimes people say something to you and you're just like, well, okay, that uh, that may really have been very helpful to me to be thinking that like, okay, my, my brain just does this. That's how it works. I mean, my brain does some really cool stuff that people look at me and go, well, how did you? I'm like, I don't know, that's patently obvious. You can't see that. It's that that's just clearly how it works. Yeah, yeah. And I see a lot of that. You're like, you're describing things in building that I, I mean, I can build a little bit, but you're, you do things in, I can just see you're doing things that are way beyond, you know, my ability to like flip things in my head in three dimensions. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. If you've come to any, if you see any of the similar threads and you're thinking about like, because you were talking about, this is just the way that I am. This is how I am. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about, you know, that these different spectrums of brains. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think it's, a, it's definitely an interesting take on it. For me, it's, I feel like I'm in a somewhat unique situation where like this is really new to me, the sort of like late 
onset of this. It's like, it would, it would feel like I would accept that explanation for, for how my brain works if I had kind of always been that way. But I think there's another dimension of, of we can also change as a person quite dramatically. Like, I don't, I don't know what limits or if there are limits on that potentially, but like, you know, you, you hear stories sometimes of people taking psychedelics or something like that and right. coming out of it as a different person, like just yeah, permanent, one, permanently one, changed. one experience can dramatically change a person. And I, I, yeah, <laughs> that, that stuff. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, I always tell people, not not podcast guys, but when people ask me questions about podcasting, I say, you can't understand what it's like to have a conversation with another human being who is literally in your head. <laughs> so we're wearing headphones. So every single thing that we say to each other, it's like Tyson is in my head when he speaks. So when somebody that you're looking at and like humans, and I, and I think all apes are really good at like eyes and, you know, facial gestures and things but that we're like five feet apart. But mm. when he speaks, he's literally like whispering in my ear or shouting in my ear. So it, it's a, there's a connection that happens when you talk to someone. And, but then when you bring them that close, there's something about audio. Um, well, what it is about it is because it's connected to the more primal parts of your brain and your eyes are not connected to the same primal parts. They're on outer further out. So it's one thing to see someone. It's nothing to have a conversation. It's another to actually have them in your head. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little moment that went by there where like he laughed and I laughed and there's like an exchange that happens. That's like, nobody else got that. Like, because you can't <laughs> experience that space. Um, there's also a very strange moment at the end of every podcast interview where we take the headphones off. And I, I have like a little moment of like, Oh, because the rest of the world is really boring compared to, I mean, like I'm assuming you're enjoying yourself, but it's compared to having a conversation with someone like that. It's like the very best, you know, chillax, confidant discussion, you know, over a shared topic of interest that you've ever had. And then it's even like closer, physiologically closer. So sorry, I'm off on a tangent because I'm obviously passionate about podcasting and audio and stuff and storytelling, um, which actually would be a good fun question. I'm, I'm like watching, I'm going to be mindful of your time. And not that I don't want to like, okay, that was, let's shake that off because I don't want to shake that off. That was like really important things that, um, I have a lot, I want to go think about. Um, but let's go in like a completely different direction. And I'm wondering if there's, I say this all the time, I'm passionate about collecting stories. I love stories. Um, and I'm wondering if there's a, a story that you'd like to share. It can be, it can be anything at all. Anyway, you're not going to give me like a prompt. <laughs> no, I love, I love like just throwing story, it out there. No, uh, anything at all. Anything at all. So, I mean, I can give you examples of stories, but, um, no, yeah, I mean, uh, if you want to uh, let that, let that cook up for a second and we'll see what you come up with. No, I need a prompt. Give me a prompt. A prompt. <laughs> um, I want, I want a story. I don't, I don't want a story that you've never told anyone. I want a story that highlights somebody that you admire. Mm, I like somebody that I admire. You asked for a prompt. I'm like, oh, you wanted an easy prompt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just have to have I have to have something to optimize around. So mm. that's where the prompt com the prompt comes in. <laughs> um, I like somebody that I admire. I and I guess know. I would say you don't have to tell me exactly who. If you want to leave the name out, you can. But yeah, it doesn't matter. Like. There are quite a few stories of me walking into the gym to like start my shift 
and discovering some crazy whacked out abomination that has been created by the coaches before I arrive. And then I have to like figure out what to, what to do with <laughs> like <laughs> just, just breaking down and just laughing. Just like, <laughs> what I, is the story behind this thing? Right? Oh my, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like something happened. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to be like, how did you even get that on top of that? Like, <laughs> Really? <laughs> How many people were here to help you do that? Uh, the one that's coming to my mind is something uh, that I'm going to hold Kurt responsible for, Kurt Jordan. Uh, I think he's responsible for probably most of these stories that I would tell about this this sort of situation. But yeah, I come into the gym and we have these, um, what we'd call a jug, which is the four foot by four foot by six foot tall box. And generally move these things around the gym. You're either flipping them end over end, right. thump, 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 <laughs> like really big lifting thing, or you're, or you're tilting it and like shoving a, a dolly with wheels underneath and then sort of like maneuvering it around. But they had a jug with a platform on it and the platform went off to another wall and then on top of that, they had another jug. So we're talking now 13 feet high up in the air. And then on top of that, there was another platform going to another section of a wall. And then I think there was some like probably ropes randomly thrown in and like, you know, some stuff for added, added style on top of it. Right. Just so that it wasn't just, just this, just this monolith of this, of this thing. And they were like, yeah, we wanted something that had like a, like an overhang that we could move between, but we also wanted it to be kind of like a tunnel. So we just built this thing and I was just, just like, you've just, you've just stacked like 13 feet high of obstacles and now I have to figure out, like, <laughs> is this thing going to kill someone? Like, are, how do I get it down without killing how, me? How do I, if if I if I'm going to take this apart, how am I going to do that without killing myself? Like, and, <laughs> and I think, let's see, did that one stay or leave? I believe that one stayed. I think I, I think I managed to strap it and screw it together in in a variety of ways so that it was able to to stay for for at least the day probably uh until we until we took it apart because it was just just this giant monstrosity of a of a thing but but yeah we had we have we have so many so many stories this was this was most of my presentation at the art of retreat was just showing pictures i would take pictures of these things regardless of whether they were going to stay or not I just, my immediate response was just like, wow, that's hilarious. I'm going to take a picture of this weird, weird thing. And some of them would have to come down and I'd be like, sorry, like that's a really cool idea, but I don't have a way to make it safe enough for the, for, for our students. So it's going to have to come down, but you know, I would file those away in my head and I'd be like, mm, we could make that strong enough if we made this thing better. Right. And then it's like, that's, that's like, oh, idea that's been stowed away and can come back out and uh i think like that was some of the most fun parts of my job i think was was we had so many coaches like at, at one point we had like 25 coaches on our staff and and they would always get like we would always encourage as much prep time as possible between before classes they're like there's always be like pretty much mandatory 30 minutes but if people came in earlier before that it's like yes gung-ho you are on your way to becoming a, a senior coach at that rate right it's like more more time you plan to prep your classes right, like right. we as far as we're concerned the better the better the class is going to be um that correlation pretty much always held out and uh you know, during that time, seeing what people would, would come up with was just, just awesome. Right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, 
building the playground that you want to build in, building the environment to, to teach like the perfect class for your students that are coming in, for your particular students that are coming in, regardless of whether your students that are coming in are, you know, three to five years old or mm. 70 plus years old, or they're on the autistic spectrum or any of these things. It's like, you can just, you can, you can build the perfect environment for them to come into. And that, that was just such a unique experience. I loved it. That's a terrific story. Um, I think this would be a good place to wrap up. So I'll just say, and of course the final question is three words to describe your practice. What's the prompt? So the, prompt, <laughs> that's fine. Um, so the prompt is normally I would give this prompt to everyone and we would cut it out, but I think it's fun to leave it in, in this case. So the prompt is picking three words is really tough because yeah, it yeah. forces you to oversimplify and at the same time, try and find words that are super powerful. So, I'm curious to see what three words people pick under duress to describe their practice. But there is also the next level up, which is you have to either literally outwardly or at least in your head, unpack what I mean or what you think I mean by the word practice. Yeah, that's the yes. stickler. <laughs> right. So what I want you to do is figure out in your mind what you would consider your practice. Is it uh, the artistry mm -hmm. of creating boxes? Is it facilitating learning? Is it spreading the idea of play? Like, so you got to figure out what practice means. And then pick your three words. And the, the piece I will give you is you're perfectly welcome to just give me three words and we're done. Or you can also like unpack them a little bit if you wish, but either way is yours. Uh, so for me, what I think of when you, when you say practice is kind of the, the common thing, the common theme that ties all the things that I do together and all the things that I think I do well together, like what's, what's hidden behind all of those things. And the first thing that comes to mind is, is courage, just the, the ability to go for something, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to work out. Um, stubbornness <laughs> because courage isn't enough, <laughs> right? Um, sometimes you just have to stick with it. And because it's not going to work the first time, most things don't work the first time. And, you know, I value being a rather stubborn person. And for the third, I would just have to say like appreciation. And this is more for me looking forward than it's been looking back because I think some of the, some of the best things that I've done come out of a deep appreciation for the people that I'm, that I'm working on those things with. And some of the worst things that, that I've, that I've done or that have influenced me have come from a lack of appreciation for mm -hmm. myself or for the love of the, of the people around me. Well, thank you very much, Tyson. It's been a pleasure to talk to you this evening. Yeah. Thank you very much, Craig. It was a lot of fun. This was episode 74 for more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 74. You already know there's more to the Movers Mindset Project than just this podcast. A lot more. In fact, there's so much that we've put together a page that describes all the different things we're currently doing, from athlete questions to guest follow-ups, from transcripts to show notes, the community, our mailing list, and more. To learn more, go to moversmindset.com and click on Overview in the menu. And I'll leave you with a final thought from Atticus Finch. A man does the job no one else wants to do. A man lives with integrity every day.
The most important form of courage is moral courage. Live with quiet dignity. Thanks for listening.